Well, please join me as we stand together to read our sermon text this morning and grab your Bible. I hope you have one and you can turn to Exodus chapter 13. Exodus is the second book in the Bible and we continue on in our ongoing studies through this great book as we come to what is the first great climax of this great book. Uh, Some of you might know how the greatest stories have these enthralling and thrilling climaxes. And what you may not know, however, about Exodus is that there are three different points in the books that in the book that function as a climax, and the first comes today in the great story of God's victory over Pharaoh at the Red Sea. So our text then today is verse 17 of chapter 13, all the way through the end of chapter 14. So let me read that text for us, a rather large and significant portion of God's Word, and then pray for our time, and we'll begin. So let us listen now as God speaks to us through His perfect and powerful Word. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, for God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you. And when he does, you shall carry up my bones from here with you. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. And the pillar of the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pahetharoth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zaphon, and you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people. And they said, What is this that we have done? That we have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. And the Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and encamped by Pihahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. And when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. 
The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of the cloud moved from before them and then stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was cloud and there was darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, and the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and their left, the Egyptians pursued and went in after them. Into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. And all of the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in His servant, Moses. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we ask that your spirit would help us. That in the midst of familiarity with this passage, we might find fresh faith and new repentance. That you would open our eyes to behold the wondrous truth that this passage contains for us. So send your spirit to help us to hear with meekness, with humility, with eager expectation as dying people. That your spirit would open my mouth to preach with clarity and tenderness. That we might see Christ and look on him and find life in his name. The very name in which we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Earlier this week I was listening to an interview with a well-known journalist now turned something of a popular historian about his recent works. And he had published a Pulitzer Prize winning trilogy on World War II. And now he's in the midst of an award winning trilogy on the Revolutionary War. And the interviewer asked him, as these interviews tend to go, 
Do we really need more books on World War II and the Revolutionary War? What do you have new to contribute to our understanding of these great events? And in the midst of his answer, he said something that's altogether relevant to our passage this morning. He said, well, you know, the the great events of human history, uh, they are truly bottomless. There's always something new to discover, something fresh to realize. And how much more true that is of God's Word in Scripture, even events like the crossing of the Red Sea. These central events of biblical history are bottomless themselves. Because, you know, if you think about the central event in American history, which surely is the Civil War, there are books and there are colloquiums and there are all kinds of studies that continue to pour forth on the Civil War. We come now, of course, to what is the central event in all of Israel's history. As the rest of the Bible makes clear, this is the event in their experience of God's glory, His power, and His majesty. And as we meditate on it together this morning, we find amidst the bottoms of this great event that God is once again proving Himself to be true to His promise. God is once again showing that no power can stand against Him. God is once again showing us that everything in this great second story of God's Word, the book of Exodus, is truly pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And so if you weren't with us last week, uh, we left off at the end of the 10th plague. Kids, I hope you can remember the 10th plague. It was the plague of Passover. And one night, God sent His destroying angel to kill all the firstborns in Egypt. And such a cry was uttered in Egypt in lamentation and wailing and woe that they had never heard anything like, like it before or anything like it ever since. But it was all the homes in Israel, weren't they, that were saved from the death because they were covered by the blood of a lamb. But if you know the story of Exodus, you do know that while the Passover brought about Israel's deliverance from bondage and slavery in Egypt, the Passover didn't bring about the final and full defeat of Pharaoh. And as we mentioned last week, the good news of the gospel is that God doesn't just deliver us from our enemies, but He defeats our enemies as well. And so we're going to see that today in our theme of the crossing of the Red Sea. We're going to see God, of course, not just deliver His people from their enemies, but He's going to defeat their enemies once and for all together. And so we're going to look through Israel's experience in this great event in three particular movements. First, we'll see Israel remembering God's promise then Israel doubting God's wisdom, and then finally Israel seeing God's victory. So first, Israel remembering God's promise. If you look down again at the end of verse 18 in chapter 13, you'll see that we're told that as they marched out defiantly and urgently from the land of Egypt, they marched out equipped for battle. The original language more literally says something like they marched out in formation. And kids, you might think of an old Sunday school song, perhaps you've sang it before, Onward Christian soldiers, marching as to war. And that's how Israel is marching out of Egypt. 600,000 men strong, surely numbering something like 2 million people in total. They're, They're marching out to war. And as they march, God is giving them three different comforts for their coming journey. And the first comfort is His promise. Because you look again at verse 19. Students, what did... Israel take with them? Or maybe a better way to ask the question is, out of everything they did take with them, what does the author to Exodus tell us was so important 
Well, it's the bones of the old godly leader named Joseph. And so, kids, students, I hope you remember something about Joseph in the first book of the Bible in Genesis. If you've been with us many months in 2020, you know that we studied that great story of Joseph at the end of Genesis several months back in the summer. It was Joseph at his deathbed. He was the favorite son of the patriarch Jacob. He had ascended to Pharaoh's right hand in power. And when he's at his dying day, he looks to his family and says, Okay, these bones, which are going to be laid to rest in Egypt, when it comes time to leave this land, you have to take my bones with you. For what he says in Genesis 50 verse 24 is, God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So as they're marching out with these bones, those bones were a tangible promise that they would get to the promised land. Because surely you know that it's one thing to get out of jail. That's another thing to get all the way home. And Israel here is getting out of the jail that was Egypt, but they're not all the way to the promised land yet, but they carry with them God's tangible reminder that they will see the promised land. Because Joseph said, these bones have to get all the way there. And so they go, first of all, with the comfort of God's promise. They also go, secondly, with the comfort of God's presence. Look again at verse 21. And the Lord went before them day by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and night. Right? There's, there's no rest along the way in this urgent departure from Egypt. They have to get going and get going quickly. So by day, they have a cloud to guide them. By night, they have fire to guide them. And as surely as they keep their eyes focused on the Lord, they're going to make it safely to their destination. And isn't that the same thing that's true for, for us in Jesus Christ, as Hebrews 12 says, which we run our race with endurance, looking to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. As surely as our eyes are set on Him, so sure and safe will be our journey all the way to the promised destination. So God's given Him these comforts of His promise, His presence. Now thirdly, maybe more surprisingly, is the comfort of His plan. His plan of how they're going to get there. You know, as our, our children grow older, we have no small instances of backseat driving that happens along the way during the week. And one of the kids, who will remain nameless for the point of this illustration, has taken it upon uh, herself, so I'm outing my one daughter. <laughs> she sits right behind the driver's seat, and uh, whenever we're going a direction she doesn't recognize, Daddy, why are we going this way? Or last week we were taking one of the others to soccer practice. Daddy, we've never gone this way before. What are we doing going this way? And if you are a well-informed, geographically inclined Israelite child in the time of the Exodus, you might discover the directions of where they were going and think, why are we going this way? Because the simplest route would look like just a straight line across from east to, from actually west to east. But they're going in more of like a horseshoe pattern. What you'll notice is the called the wilderness. You see that in verse 18. God led the people around by the way of the wilderness. And then you'll see he gives them precise directions of why they're going to encamp. And his plan that he's given this comfort has two particular purposes. You'll see the first purpose is that of 
protection. In verse 17, he says he's not going to lead them through the land of the ferocious Philistines, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Maybe that's a comfort for you, too. God knows the struggles of His people. He knows that when His people are going to meet opposition, when the Israelites will face an enemy, they will quickly lose heart and want to turn back. So he says, we're not going to go the short route because we've got to go through the Philistines to get there. So we're going to go the long route. And it's not just the purpose of protection. It also has a divine purpose of revelation. Because you see, he, he plants them. There was a war on this ancient map, you know, kind of this GPS, geographic coordinate. This is precisely where you're going to encamp by the Red Sea. And the reason you're going to encamp there is because of what I'm going to do with Pharaoh. Notice verse 3 and 4. Pharaoh will say, the people are wandering. The wilderness has shut them in and I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. I'm going to get glory over Pharaoh. The original language is rather intense. I will get what I deserve by putting you right here. And some of you, I would imagine, perhaps many of you might be in a place in your life where you have some sympathy with the Israelites here. God's direction in your life seems rather confusing. God's direction in your life may seem rather crazy. But might it not be for your own protection? Might it not be for the own revelation of His glory through the journey He's taking you on to the promised destination? Israel is going with these comforts, His promise, His presence, and His plan. And they're going to go from remembering now God's promise to doubting God's wisdom. Doubting God's wisdom. I mean, I have a friend, like many of you might, or family member, that often advises me, recommends movies that I should watch. And this friend normally... In years past, would go a step further and saying, "Hey, let's let's watch this movie together because I have this, you know, nice home theater system, and uh, we need to watch it on the right screen and listen to it on the right sound system." And so, a few years ago, he had said, "You need to come over to my house because I know you like World War II history, and you need to see this movie that you've never seen before, and it's called The Great Escape. It's this kind of old classic about." A true story in 1944 where a number of British and Commonwealth soldiers tried to get out of a Nazi war camp. And as the story goes, about 76 of them did make it out of prison. But if you know the story, only three of them actually made it to freedom. The rest of them were recaptured, many of whom were killed. And my, my friend who knows that I like movies that end well, they don't have a bad ending, I was Thus, not terribly surprised when I looked over him at the closing credits and said something to the effect of out loud, out loud that was the great escape? Because it didn't seem too great at all, did it? And if you're at this point in chapter 14 with Israel and camped there at the sea, Pharaoh, verses 5 through 9, does exactly what God says he's going to do. And he comes up now, marching towards them. And they surely might think to themselves, this is the great escape. He's coming for us once again. And so they start to doubt God. Look at verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. 
Or as the old King James would say, they were sore afraid. They, in the next two verses, you can just glance your eyes through there. They ask Moses this series of three questions. Sarcastic, full of unbelief, that essentially say, Moses, it would have been better just to stay slaves in Egypt than to die here in the wilderness. They begin to complain when only surely hours before they had seen God's great power and Pharaoh finally repenting and relenting, letting the Israelites finally go, but they're already ready to turn back when the going has just gotten tough. They're just forgetting God. They're complaining about God's providence. They're complaining about God's wisdom, aren't they? And maybe you, like Israel, perhaps this week even, have complained about God's wisdom. You're forgetting the majesty of God's providence. And perhaps the reason you're doing that is the same reason Israel was doing that. They were living by sight, not by faith. Because apparently, in the face of Pharaoh and his huge army, God's promise, God's presence, and God's plan don't mean a whole lot to God's people. And maybe you're facing an enemy of sorts in your own life. And the devil is using it for you to recognize or think that God's promise, presence, and plan, they don't mean much for you either. They go from remembering God's promise to doubting God's wisdom. And now they go to seeing the Lord's victory. You'll see what Moses says in verse 13. Like the Redeemer General that he is, he stands before the people and announces, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. My kids, if, if you want to try to capture what would have been the shocking command of Moses at this point in the story, would be if you were to go to visit a zoo in the coming weeks and someone kind of came running down the trail in panic saying, the lions are loose and they're running. And then the zookeeper that just happens to be standing right next to you says, don't worry, stand still. Really, Moses? Stand still? Do you see what's all the way over there? Yes, we see God in a pillar of cloud, but we see an Egyptian army and all their chariots blot out the horizon. Stand still. Well, here's why. Look at verse 14. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The original language is much more forceful. It'd be something like translating it as, the Lord will fight, be quiet. And isn't that true so many times in our own life where we might be tempted to bring about self-salvation, to save ourselves on our own power and own wisdom, own strength and ability, where the Lord, through His Word and Spirit, says, stand still. The Lord will fight. You need to only be quiet and watch Him work. And the reason you need to understand the even command to stand still is really more metaphorical for trust is because of what we're told in verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Right? So the Lord is saying, don't stand still, get going, is what he's saying. More strikingly, he's saying to Moses, Moses, why are you praying? Get moving. And I wonder if you've ever been at a point in your life where you've realized through the Spirit's work that the time for prayer is past and the time to get going is here. And sometimes it's thoroughly right to stand still. 
Sometimes it may actually be wrong to just stand still. Moses, it's time to get going. And so the rest of the story proceeds as I'm sure many of you know it does. God gives Moses the plan for battle. God gives Moses the commands and the actions that he's going to require. He says, all right, Pharaoh's here. Here's what's going to happen. You'll see in verse 19, the angel of God is going to move into a rear guard position instead of by constantly being in front of God, the pillar of fire, the pillar of the cloud is going to move behind the people to protect you, to separate you from the Egyptians. And Moses, what you're going to need to do is you're going to stretch out your hands over the water and an east wind is going to blow. It's going to blow so powerfully, so greatly that the waters are going to divide. It's going to dry out the land. You're going to have these water-like walls on your right and left and start marching the people through. And when you get all the way through, Moses, guess what? I've hardened Pharaoh's heart. He's going to come in running after you, thinking that he's going to get you. And you'll see what I'm going to do to him in the morning watch. Notice verse 24. In the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot, so they drove heavily. Basically, kids, what that means is they're stuck there. The morning watch would be sometime between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. So sometime in the early morning, Pharaoh, his servants, his chariots, his army, they're clogged in the Red Sea. And God says, Moses, all my people are safely across. Go back. Stretch out your hands once again that I might close the waters in on Pharaoh and all of his armies. And you see verse 28, the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. Such is God's deliverance of his people from their enemies. Such is God's defeat of his people's enemies. When God moves in this way, total destruction follows. And what's interesting, if you know anything about the Genesis creation story. It's how a fair amount of actually this story echoes what happened at creation, where the Spirit, likened to a wind, blew over the face of the earth, and dry land came from the water. And in the same way, the Spirit of the Lord is, is blowing through this east wind, and dry land is coming from the water. And whereas in Genesis 1 it was about creation, the same thing actually happens in Genesis 8 with Noah and the ark about a new creation. And the same thing is here happening again in Exodus chapter 14. This is the new creation of Israel. They've passed through the waters of death and now have found themselves on the safe seashore of life. Now if you're in here today and, and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian and say that you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, what you need to know is that kind of judgment, that kind of power and punishment that fell upon the Egyptians will we'll fall upon you if you remain in your unbelief and unrepentance. But if you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and come to Him in faith and repentance, what you'll find is that those same waters that would have fallen on you, waters of judgment have fallen on Him, that He's taken them in your place that you might stand before Him by faith as a new creation, made new in the Lord Jesus Christ, completely washed of all of your sin, delivered from all of your enemies, that you might walk in the newness of life, which is why Jesus can say in John's gospel, anyone who believes in my Father and believes in me has passed from death to life. I wonder if you've all passed from death 
to life as Israel did there at the Red Sea. Uh, You might know that the book of Exodus has no small number of critics, no small number of debates and discussions abound about the truthfulness of stories like the Red Sea. As I was thinking about that earlier this week, I recalled this old story about a young girl in a Sunday school class that was studying God's work at the Red Sea. And the Sunday school teacher there in this liberal mainline denomination was, was reading Exodus chapter 14. And when it got to the point of, of Israel being saved across the waters of the Red Sea, this little girl abounded, That's amazing! Praise the Lord! Saved all the way through the Red Sea! And the Sunday school teacher, as many have done throughout the ages, said, Well, you must really know that the Red Sea can also be translated as Sea of Reeds. And the Sea of Reeds is not terribly deep. In fact, it's only usually six inches deep in most of the water. It's more like a creek than a sea. That's what God delivered His people across. Nothing terribly miraculous or majestic about that, eh? Well, this little girl burst out, That's amazing! Praise the Lord! He drowned the Egyptians in six inches of water. (laughs) Such is God's power. We, of course, take the Bible as truth. There was a wall of water on each side. But such is the simplicity of faith, isn't it? Of trust, joy, and delight. Amazement at what God has done for His people. So as we begin to close, what I want to do is help you understand from this text the two appropriate responses to God's deliverance here at the Red Sea, God's defeat of Pharaoh at the Red Sea, the first of which is respond with fear. Look at verse 31. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord. I wonder how much you fear the Lord. Do you fear Him as a God that can so easily enclose waters on the greatest army known to the world at that time. And if you want to know how easily he did it, uh, glance back up to the end of verse 27. As the Egyptians fled into the Red Sea, the Lord threw them into the midst of the sea. Uh, That word through in Hebrew, it's relatively interesting in the word picture has this kind of tone of, he just shook off, he he shrugged off the Egyptians. So kids, it'd be like, you know, walking in from outside and you just want to kind of dust off your hands, you know. Shrug off the dirt. So God does that with the greatest known army in the world at the time. Such as his power and might. And if that doesn't cause a degree of holy fear to well up within you, you haven't truly seen the story, you're right. If he can do that with Pharaoh and Egypt's army, What could he do in your life? Respond with fear, number one. Number two, respond with faith. Can you see how the text ends? They feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. It's an interesting way the New Testament reflects on this story. You can turn there later today in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It speaks of the Red Sea event as Israel's baptism. They were baptized into Moses. And in the same way, through faith in the Lord and His Son, Jesus Christ, you might be baptized into Jesus Christ. It's one thing to have fear towards the Lord, which you should. That's another thing to have fear and faith towards the Lord and towards, you notice, His Redeemer. 
And it wasn't just faith in Yahweh. It was also faith in Moses. His power of deliverance. His power in bringing them across the Red Sea. It's one thing to fear the Father and have faith in the Father. It's one thing to also fear the Son and have faith in the Son. Do you know His deliverance? For, for Moses stretched out his hands, didn't he? And he brought those waters of judgment upon the Egyptians. Jesus stretched out his hands and brought those waters of judgment into his very heart. Moses stretched out his hands and drowned the Egyptians in punishment. Jesus stretched out his hands and his soul drowned in God's wrath. Moses stretched out his hands that Israel might know the Lord's saving power. Jesus stretched out his hands that he might be God's saving power. Through faith in him, you can be delivered from your enemy, which is sin. Through faith in him, your enemies, sin, Satan, and death are defeated because of the great majestic work of God, our Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would help us to abound in fear and faith this day and even this coming week. That we might know your glory rightly. That we might understand your majesty truly. That our affection and adoration of you would only abound evermore. And Father, you, we pray that you would protect us by your spirit from being like Israel. Doubting, complaining, and forgetting you. But let us revel anew in rejoicing. And the deliverance and defeat that you have worked for us in Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.